Today, we will be in Psalm 62. Next week, we're going to be in Psalm 23. I don't know if you've been waiting for that one in particular, but we're going to be in Psalm 23 next week. But today, Psalm 62. I read Psalm 61 as part of our call to worship this morning. Before we read 62 together, I want to ask a question. How many of you guys know what an idiom is? Not an idiot, an idiom. An idiom is kind of like a colloquial phrase where the end result like has nothing really to do with the words that are used in the phrase, right? So uh, here's, here's kind of an example. Let's go paint the town red or paint the town. You're not actually going and painting anything. You're going to go have a good time. You're going to go party, okay? Or something like this, you know, I've got egg on my face. You ever heard that one before? It means I've embarrassed myself. Here's another good one. When pigs fly, like pigs aren't going to ever actually fly, but that's the point. It's extremely unlikely to happen. Or one that maybe we're more familiar with is she's got a bun in the oven. Here is another one that I want to talk more about today, and it's this. Silence is golden. Now, if you are a kid, you have heard that before. And if you are a parent, you've said that before. At least I have, I know. As best historians can tell, like in the 1800s, there was this author named Thomas Carlyle, and he translated this phrase from, I don't know, Arabic to German or something, and the whole phrase was, speech is silver, silence is golden. Gold being the more valuable of the things. So I think most of us understand what this is getting at. All right, It's not scripture, but it's scripture influence. And in your notes, I've got just a handful of proverbs that speak to this very thing. Let me read through them really quickly. Talking about silence being golden, it says in 13.3, Whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. Whoever opens, opens wide his lips comes to ruin. Proverbs 18.13, if one gives an answer before he hears, he, it is his folly and his shame. Proverbs 10.19, when words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Proverbs 29.11, a fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. Proverbs 17.28, even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. That one is funny to me. Proverbs 11.12, whoever battles, belittles his neighbor lacks sense, but a man of understanding remains silent. So this applies on a lot of different levels, not just when we want peace and quiet at home with the children. Though peace and quiet is good, it is more and more rare, isn't it? So we appreciate it, I hope, at least as I get older, I appreciate it more and more. The other level of this is that sometimes just keeping your mouth shut is a great virtue and the hardest thing to do, isn't it? Sometimes it's better, and you probably teach your kids this too, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. That's that's still a pretty good piece of advice there. But I think there's another application that David hits on here in Psalm 62. Now, I don't think this is all that he's getting at, saying that silence is golden, but he kind of starts the conversation there. And it's important because he says it two different times in this psalm, both times followed by the reason why he chooses to be silent. See if you can pick up on that. 
as we read Psalm 62 and then ask the Lord's blessing on the word. Let's read together. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him? Like a leaning wall, a tottering fence. They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood and they bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. For God alone, my, oh my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Verse 8, trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up, they are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your hearts on them. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this. The power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render a man according to his work. Lord, bless to our hearts the reading of your word. Now, Lord, bless the explanation of your word as the Spirit would move. Lord, help us to understand this in a way that we immediately apply it. Lord, not just to stay out of trouble, Lord, but to be better image bearers of Christ in the world around that desperately needs to see him. Thank you that we can see him even in this text today. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So right away, in verse 1, David sets the tone for the whole psalm. He says, for God alone. For God alone. David's communicating, I think, that he doesn't choose to be silent just because he's he's going to keep him out of trouble or because he'll regret saying something if he speaks. I think David is silent because of his confidence in God. That's how he can be silent and wait is because he's confident in the Lord. He says, from him comes my salvation. Look at verse two. He expounds on this a little bit. He says, for he is my rock and my salvation, my fortress, I shall not be greatly shaken. I so appreciate the songs that we sang this morning. Did you, did you see these things that we sang? We will not be shaken. This is what David is saying here. Now in the word, in the Hebrew, the word alone or only, or maybe in some of your translations says truly, that word is used six times in the first nine verses in the Hebrew. And so we've mentioned this before in the book of Psalms specifically. Repetition equals emphasis. Okay, so he's repeating something here that he wants us to see and to understand. David is is clear and he's confident that he can rest and he can be silent and wait because he trusts God. That's why. It's not because his bank account is full. It's not because the politicians are doing what he thinks they should. None of that stuff is what quiets his heart allows him to wait in silence. It's because he trusts God. George Mueller said, the natural mind is ever prone to reason when we ought to believe, to be at work when we ought to be quiet, to go our own way when we ought to steadily walk on in God's ways. There's this battle that I think we feel pretty regularly 
in this situation. And you know how, how tempting it is to, to complain or to doubt or to fear in our times of trouble. And we talked about this just a couple of weeks ago and about trials. But we don't see any of that kind of thing from David here, do we? We don't see fear. We don't see doubt. We don't even hear him praying and asking God for anything really at all. There's not a single word of fear or sadness. We looked at lots of Psalms where that is expressed, and so certainly that's not wrong. Authors plead for God's help, for his comfort, for his protection, for his provision, justice, all of these things, but we don't see that in Psalm 62. Here, all we see is faith and trust. Now, I don't want... Anybody misunderstand me or hopefully misunderstand David here, there are lots of times in our lives when we will say, God, I need you to be very near to me. I need you here. I need you to deliver me. I need you to apply justice. Give me mercy. Give me strength. All that stuff. That's appropriate. And we need to know and understand that God hears those prayers. He hears and he acts out of the abundance of his steadfast love for his people. That stuff is not wrong, but there are times. There are times when it is right to stop talking and just listen. And that's hard for some of us to do. Silence sometimes is really golden, but sometimes, and this is kind of what we were talking with the kids about, sometimes silence isn't silent, is it? You can eliminate distractions. You can turn off the TV, put your phone down, and just be alone with your thoughts, and that can be rather deafening, can't it? Sometimes we can finally get alone, but it doesn't seem to help at all. And that's because the goal of biblical silence, the silence that we're talking about here this morning, is not just simply hearing nothing and thinking about nothing. It's not just clearing your mind. I'm not proposing any kind of new age philosophy here. It's none of that. I want you to go home and sit cross-legged and say ohm all the time. That's not what I'm getting at. I mean that if, if we tell you, like, don't think about anything, you can't do that. I like to mess with my kids and I'll say, hey, don't think about sparkly unicorns. What are you thinking about now? Sp- sparkly unicorns. You can't just stop thinking about nothing. Our minds just continue chugging along. So, I mean, even you think, well, while I'm sleeping, my mind will turn off. But then you dream and sometimes they're crazy dreams. And you just never can be left alone, it seems. Sometimes when we find some peace and quiet, maybe we we're walking down and we find a creek and there's you know this quiet stream or uh, maybe we're just walking along a wooded path this time of year looking at the trees changing colors. Or maybe you just got to get in your car and drive with the, with the radio off. Anybody else do that? And you just need some peace and quiet. But that can't just be the end of it. Our minds just don't stop thinking, so we need to supply the, supply our minds with something to think about, something better than the chaos that's happening up there oftentimes. So even though our location around us can be very quiet and still, sometimes that exterior silence sort of amplifies the chaos within. Now we're frustrated and even Worse off than when we started trying to find silence. So our goal in seeking silence isn't just to pursue absolute quietness around us or quietness, this state of mind. 
Our goal should be surrendered silence. And that's what I think we see from David here. He says, for God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. David's silence is not just vague nothingness. He seeks time of silence because, number one, he hopes in God. And then, number two, that we'll come back around to in just a minute. Number two, because he's hearing from God. Look at verses three through four. These kind of shift the focus a bit. David is now not just saying about his soul. He is looking outward a bit, and he begins speaking to those who consider his enemies. His faith is settled on God alone, but it didn't stop him from rebuking rebuking those who opposed him. And he sought to uh, instruct them, in a sense, here. They wanted to bring him low. They wanted to bring him down. This This verse, if nothing else, is just a reminder to the godly that Sometimes the only recourse when enemies attack is to just plant themselves on the rock of their salvation and be quiet. Oftentimes, that's the best recourse. I mean, that's, we saw that's what Jesus did in the last days of his life. For the believer, David says, God is their fortress in verse 2. God is their fortress. In him they shall not be greatly shaken. I couldn't find the author of this quote, but I I love it. I wanted to share it with you guys. It said this, Nothing which does not shake the rock can shake the frail tent pitched on it. Let me say that again. Nothing which does not shake the rock can shake the frail tent pitched on it. Our lives are the frail tent, okay? And if they are secured to the unmoving rock, Nothing can shake us because nothing shakes the rock that we're planted on. And Jesus Christ, the rock of our salvation, is that sure and steady anchor for our souls to cling to you, to, Hebrews says. Moving on to verses 5, 6, 7, and 8, we see that David, he kind of repeats himself in some sense, but he expands on it a bit. Verses 5 and 6 are almost identical to verses 1 and 2, but there's a couple slight variations. One difference is that in verse 1, David said that that was already the state of his soul. He says, for God alone, my soul waits in silence. Here in verse 5, he speaks to himself again. As Jason was praying earlier, he's, he's preaching the gospel. He's reminding himself of this same thing. Soul remain planted on the steadfast foundation of the Lord. Remain in that place of trust and in silent surrender to God. I think David recognized here his own tendency to veer away from trusting the Lord. And so he reminded himself to wait in silence because God alone is his hope, his rock, his salvation, his fortress, his refuge. There was good reason to trust the Lord, but his enemies and even his own heart tended to lead him away from this truth. 16th century commentator John Trapp says, He that stands with one foot on a rock and another foot upon a quicksand will sink and perish as certainly as he that standeth with both feet upon quicksand. David knew this, and therefore he calls earnestly upon his soul to trust only in God. He's talking about this idea of, well, I want to trust the Lord, but... I think maybe pursuing wealth could make me happy and secure too. Maybe pursuing 
perfect relationships with all of my family is what's going to make me happy and set me on a, a right foundation. And so you've got one foot on the rock, so to speak, and one foot on the, the shifting sands of all of those other things. And he's, John Trapp's saying, you might as well just have them both on the sand because you're going to fall. Riding the fence, one foot in the world, one foot trusting the Lord doesn't work. It has to be all or nothing. There's another slight variation that we see between verses 2 and 6. In verse 2, David says, I shall not be greatly shaken, or I shall not be greatly moved, the King James says. But then in verse 6, it says, I shall not be shaken or moved. Now, there may be more meaning in that little variation than I see But if nothing else, we see that David, in in the span of whatever time it was between verses 2 and 6, his confidence in the Lord has grown. Because he's saying in verse 2, I won't be greatly shaken or moved. But in in verse 6, he's saying, I won't be moved at all. Then at the end of verse 7, David confirms, he says, my refuge is God. That's why. That's why he can be still and wait in silence. He has made this decision to trust in the Lord and hope in the Lord and in nothing else and in no one else. It seems like maybe David was tempted the same way that you and I are tempted, even today. And that's just to put our trust in other things. To think that other things are more stable than who God is. But David rightly refused Charles Spurgeon points something out here that I thought was really helpful. He says, Observe how the psalmist brands his own initials upon every name which he rejoicingly gives to God. He says, My hope, my rock, my salvation, my glory, my strength, my refuge. He's not content to know that the Lord is all these things. He acts in faith towards him and lays claim to him under every character. So Christian, this morning, believer, that's the question I want to kind of launch at you at this point. Have you branded your own initials upon these names of God in your life? Is he your rock? Is he your strength? Is he your refuge to run to? It's right to recognize that he is all those things, but we need to know that he is them for us, for you, because of Christ. We'd be right to, as Charles Spurgeon suggested, brand our own initials on all of those things that the Lord is. Then in verse 8, he urges the whole nation of Israel to put their trust in the Lord at all times. So I've got another idiom for you. See if you've heard this one before. I'm sure some of you old people like me know it. What's good for the goose is good for the gander. You heard that one before? What's good for one group is good for another group. What's good for the king of Israel is good for all of the people of Israel here. If it was good for the king to put his total and complete confidence and trust in the Lord, it was good for the whole nation as well. I think David Lee, David certainly thinks so. That's what he says here. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Isn't that a wonderful addition here in verse 8? I just want to stop here for just a moment in verse 8. Because God absolutely is a refuge. He is a rock that is immovable. And David is right to think of God as a rock because of his strength and because of his stability. But God isn't insensitive and unfeeling like a rock might be, like we might associate with a rock. God isn't that way. We're invited, as David says, to pour out our hearts before him. Wow. 
our sorrows, our joys, our insecurities, our worries, everything burdening our hearts can and should be cast upon the rock because he is our refuge and he cares for us. Pour out your hearts before him. The specific word refuge is used 47 times in the book of Psalms alone. We are being constantly encouraged by the authors to put our trust in the Lord as a refuge, a place to run to when we're in trouble, when we're feeling alone, when we feel like we can't go on. Psalm 118 verse 8 says, It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. And the next verse right after that in Psalm 118 verse 9 says, It's better to take refuge in the Lord than, in, than to trust in princes. You see what he's saying? He's saying the same thing that David's saying here. It's better to trust in the Lord than to trust, to take refuge in God than to trust in mankind or even princes, even high up people, maybe that are saying they're going to protect you or save you or be that stabilizing force in your life. David says, "Uh uh-uh. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in them. He's the one who you pour your heart out to. He is the one who is your safe place of refuge. So we've seen David teach himself. He's reminding himself to trust the Lord. He's exhorting his enemies to change their ways. He's teaching the kingdom who to trust. Look at verses 9 and 10 again with me. He says, those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up, they are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hope on robbery. If riches increase, set not your hearts on them. So whether you're a person of low estate or a person of high estate, we repeat what Ecclesiastes' theme was, life is but a vapor. It's a mist. Vanity, he says there. So these verses from Psalm 118, 8 and 9 Help us understand what David means. He again says, take refuge in the Lord rather than put your trust in man or in princes. It's not wise to put our hope in just flesh and blood that we see around us. Even though they might have a high title. Because when either one of them sits on the proverbial scales, what do they weigh? Nothing. It's just a breath. It's just a vapor. There's no substance to them. Why would you put your hope on a vapor, when you have the rock of the universe to set your hope on. That's what David is saying here. It doesn't matter, low estate, high estate. Verse 10, he reminds us that not only can we not set our hopes on mere man, we cannot set them on riches either. No matter how those riches came to be in our lives. Surely David had seen people advance in wealth because of extortion, or theft, those are two specific things that he mentions here. Gosh, we've seen that recently, haven't we, in people. David assures us, the reader, the believer here, he says, those riches certainly can't be trusted. Don't put your trust in ill-gotten gain. But I think he would also say, don't put it in just normal, regular gotten gain either because that stuff all just is a vapor. Charles Spurgeon again, he says, As we must not rest in men, so neither must we rest in money. Gain and fame are just foam of the sea. 
Verses 11 and 12 bring us back, I think, full circle to the first two verses. David said at the beginning, from God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation or my hope is from him. Remember, David's silence is not just vague nothingness. He's not just getting on this higher meditative plane or anything like that. He seeks times of silence because he hopes in God. That was number one. And number two that we're going to hear from now is because he's hearing from God. Here's how he's hearing from God. Look at verses 11 and 12. He says, God has spoken. Then right after that, he says, I have heard something that breaks through the silence that David was content to sit in. There's something that breaks through the silence that he needs that he wants. David connects his hope in God with the word of God. He connects those things together. His hope in God, who speaks in all his commandments and statutes and words, those words are what causes him to seek silence in the first place. So I think that's why his soul can wait in silence, because he's expecting to hear from God. When he goes to be quiet, he expects to hear from God. In a way, David's silence is focused on what God has already said. I think similarly, this is kind of like auditory fasting, almost. When you fast from food, it's not just to lose weight or to not eat. It's filling the space of eating with more of God and His Word. And so David, I think, is doing that on an audible level here. He's replacing what he would be normally listening to, listening to, whether it's his enemies around him or whether it's his own heart. And he's filling that space with more of the Lord and his word. It's a purposeful silence. It's a surrendered silence. So it's good and it's right to eliminate distractions and noisy things around us. So you could go home and turn off the TV, put down your phone, close the laptop, Right, And that would be a good thing. But if all you do is eliminate noise, we've not gone far enough. Our purpose in these times needs to be defined or we're just going to get caught up in the chaos of our own minds. <laughs> right, Retreating back in there and the schedule that we have to keep and all of the tasks that we still have to complete. And it, we, we might be silent externally, but not inwardly. So we put those things away so that we can deliberately hear from God specifically in his word. I think that's what David is doing here. In contrast to verse 9, when men are nothing but a breath, a vapor, David understands that to God belongs both power and steadfast love. Power to carry out his holy will, everything that he would desire, and steadfast love in which his people can trust in him. Look at verse 12. As we consider this last verse David, I think, is convinced that God is just and he will, as he says, render or reward or give to every person according to what he or she does, their work in life. Now, this sounds like negative judgment, maybe, to some of us where God's going to pay you back for all the stuff that you've done. I don't think that's what David is getting at here. I think in its context, it's actually an expression of God's mercy when he says he's going to render every man according to his work. To paraphrase another old-time scholar, Thomas Horn, he says, David recommends that we sit in silence with these two most interesting subjects, 
the power of God to punish sin, but his mercy to pardon it. Fear of his power will produce desire of his mercy. Those are the two things he lists. Power that belongs to the Lord and steadfast love. Or I think the King James Version says mercy. These are those two most interesting subjects that we sit in silence with. And when we fear God for who he is in the proper way, we're going to desire more of his mercy. And the beautiful thing is that he gives it. Now, a person's work, as you can understand from all of Scripture that we see this kind of language, it reveals whether that person's faith is real and genuine or counterfeit. Really, their Lord and Master, or are they just putting on a front? Well, in the end, God is the one who sorts them out. But this is another ground of confidence for David and I think us as believers. But I think it's another warning to an unbeliever as well. And so here's... David's thought process through this psalm as best I can understand it. He says at the beginning, he says, my confidence is in God alone. No one else, nothing else. Evil people, your confidence in yourself is misplaced and it will really hurt you in the end. And he goes back to that theme. He says, my confidence is in God alone. No doubt about it. I will not be moved. Then he starts talking to God's people. He says, People, you are right to trust in God and nothing else. In fact, you can pour out your hearts to him. And then he closes the psalm by going back to that theme again. He says, my confidence is in God who settles everything in the end. His power, his love and mercy, they rule in the end. And he's confident of that. And he has confidence because of that. So we leave our time together this morning with this idea of confident silence of surrendered silence, I would say of settled silence. We can wait and be quiet because we're confident in God's power. We can wait and be quiet because we're surrendered to God's will. And we can wait and be quiet because we're settled in his perfect plan. His will, his plan will come to pass and they have come to pass in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We can be confident and surrendered and settled because of what Jesus has done. Not because of what we do. So I'll leave you all with the same encouragement that David left us in verse 8. Trust in him at all times. Ramsey Creek people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. He's a refuge. He can be your hope. Your rock, your salvation, your glory, your strength, your refuge. But it takes belief. It takes shifting your trust from yourself or whatever the world is telling you to trust in and setting it on God alone as the rock. Here's how Jesus says it in John chapter 6, verse 40. He says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life. Let's pray. Lord, that same message is what we need to hear today. From Jesus himself, he's saying, every person that looks to me and believes has eternal life and will be raised on the last day. Lord, that's what I hope for, for every person listening this morning. Lord, I pray that they would look to Jesus as the author and perfecter of faith, as the rock 
who came and has done away with the penalty of sin, has crushed death by death, Lord, and then has raised again to prove that he has the power to do everything he has promised he would do. Lord, and that we might look to him and believe. That we might look to him and be content. Lord, the world is pulling us. Even our own hearts and minds are pulling us to trust in other things. To give our hearts over to other people or or other ideas. Lord, save us from those things. Help us to preach the true message of salvation and the gospel back to our own souls every day. That God alone is our refuge. That He alone is our salvation, our rock, our only hope. Lord, because if we think that something else will be, Lord, we might as well have both feet in the sands. A shift, Lord. But in Christ is the solid rock. And Lord, as we've said this morning, Nothing will shake us that can't shake the rock when we're staking our tent on it. Help us to do that with our lives, maybe for the first time this morning. Lord, so if if there's some that are hearing this that have not ever put their total faith in you and you alone, Lord, I pray that they would cry out to you, plead with you for salvation, knowing that when they look to Jesus and believe, it's theirs. Thank you for these things. In Christ's name we pray, amen.